there. You're listening to Tail Chase. On this episode, we sit down with a couple fellow falconers to talk about some of the projects that they have going on in their lives, as well as the birds they like to fly, and some differences in squirrel hawking from state to state. If you want more content, check us out at our website, tail-chase.com, for blog posts and some upcoming videos. We really appreciate you joining us for this episode. Hope you enjoy. Chase. I'm Nick Mazzara. Graham Scarborough. And we are sitting here in Michael Moore's truck trapping uh, Harlan Redtails is the goal for the day. And joining us, obviously, Michael Moore is with us. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Michael? Uh, been a falconer for about five years now. Uh, state of Alabama. Uh, fly Redtail Hawks. That's my, I guess, my passion. Uh, pretty much fly on a uh, gray squirrel. Uh, some fox squirrels in the area, but majority is uh, grays. Uh, population of rabbit, cottontails is uh, really down from coyote, and uh, we mainly see uh, gray squirrels. Do you have swamp rabbits down there? We do have, we call them cane cutters. We do have them. Uh, we actually had some folks at the Napa meet catch a few oh, cool. um, two year, three years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you call them cane cutters? Yeah. Well, they kind of look like a, a jackrabbit in a way. They have uh, long ears, uh, not not near as big, but they uh, they'll actually uh, feed on some of the natural kinds of uh, cane in the swamps. And, okay. Yeah. Okay. How big around is a cane plant? Like. Mm, probably like a. Like an inch. Like like bamboo size, like natural. Uh, yeah, probably half inch to an inch, maybe. And they'll just like <laughs> gnaw that all the way off. Like yeah, yeah they, they they feed on it, um, and they actually uh, they'll dig holes and burrow and okay, yeah, interesting. And then the other person with us is Jackie Berry, who is doing research on Harlan's red tails. Um, Jackie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the research that project that you're working on? So um, I've uh, been a falconer for eight years. I've been working with raptors for about ten years. Uh, got my start at a boarding school where I met um, someone who was a, a mentor to me at the time, Paul Fowler, who um, taught me the basics of hunting with red tails. And from then on, I was just completely addicted. I did an internship uh, in England where I lived for three months flying a variety of different raptors. No red tails there, um, but hunted some squirrels with Harris Hawks and then came back and got my start here in North America primarily hunting gray squirrels, um, some kind of weird catches. Uh, one of my first kills was a fox, um, oh. which was, you know, that was kind of wild. Red or gray or what? A red fox, yeah. Don't know gray gosh. fox, yeah. As it was going in a den, she caught it by the butt. No kidding. Was it an adult or? <laughs> yeah, it was a big fox. It was, it was burrowing in to get away. Uh-huh. And, um, that was really crazy. And haven't had that happen since. Had some turkey flights that, you know, we've had feathers pulled on that. But, you know, primarily gray squirrels, you know, occasional rabbit, but really the squirrel flights are the most fun for me for sure. Yeah. And uh, regarding my research, so I just uh, finished a master's um, at Columbia University in New York City. 
um, where I wanted to study plumage polymorphism in red-tailed hawks, um, especially in Harlan's hawks, which can be so varied. They have such a unique tail. It's like a fingerprint. So I did a candidate gene analysis um, using specimens at the American Museum of Natural History. And I did, um, I sequenced uh, three different genes that are known to be associated with melanism across different taxa. It's a highly conserved, highly conserved genes and didn't find any associations there, which is interesting because they did a study in deer falcons and they found that this gene was perfectly associated with the black, silver, and white morphs. So um, it's a pretty surprising result. We don't really know what's going on with these birds. And just choosing three genes out of a possible, you know, 200 different genes, it's like a needle in a haystack. So mm -hmm. it was a short project. So now that I'm, I'm starting my PhD at Auburn um, in an ornithology lab, um, they do mitochondrial research, bird coloration research, hybridization research. So I'm going to be doing full genomic sequencing of a bunch of different birds, uh, harlins, hawks, criders, a bunch of other subspecies. Uh, dark northerns um, are a thing now people are starting to do research on. So I think I'll have a better chance of identifying different genomic regions that are responsible for coloration, and hopefully we can pinpoint that down. So, okay, so the dark northern thing, that's new to me. Like I've It is. Western dark birds and then harlins. Right. So tell me about these dark northerns. Where so are they this, is, this is a new idea. Um, it's the Albedicola subspecies. And they do look a little bit different from the dark westerns, enough that we are considering them, you know, as a unique type of dark morph red tail. Okay. Um, now, on eBird, um, a bunch of people, it's, it's a kind of a new stipulation that when people are identifying these dark morph western versus northern birds, they'll, they'll put Caloris slash Albedicola okay. um, because it's still that contested and vague. Uh -huh. um, and I know right now, so there's 15 recognized subspecies of red-tailed hawks, but a lot of people think there's only really 11 or 12. The criders is actually, most people just think that's a color morph. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's been, you know, very controversial taxonomic debate about Harlan's hawk. Um, one of my friends, Bill Clark, who's a big Harlan's hawk researcher, published a paper recently in Zootaxa, um, basically claiming... You know, there's all these diagnostic traits. These are how harlins are different, and they ought to be, you know, a good species on their own. And, you know, historically, this subspecies has been, you know, flip-flopped back and forth between being a subspecies and a species. And Yeah, for, the, for those uninitiated out there, Audubon initially, I mean, had them identified as an entirely different species from mm -hmm. red tails. And, and didn't, didn't he found a nesting pair in... Was it Alabama? Yeah, or Mississippi? I think it was somewhere in the southeast. He shot a US. pair of them. Like, you know, this was back in the day when you just shot. Yeah, stuff. I thought I saw those pictures, but I didn't think that was in the southeast. I know that I've seen some records of migrating adults coming okay. to Alabama, but I haven't heard of that record. But I think mm -hmm. I know what you're talking about, uh -huh. um, you know, back, back in the day. And, and still today, you know, birds in, in collections are shot. Mm -hmm. um, because they're valuable to science. They're, they're not at risk of being endangered or anything. And the, the value's very, very high for looking at those birds. Mm -hmm. um, for getting tissue samples, because, you know, there's only so much you can learn from a bird by looking at its feathers or even by its blood. Yeah. Um, the analyses that I did, I took um, fresh tissue samples from specimens. Okay. So I was just getting ready to ask you, because I dabbled around 
looking into doing that in college uh, mm-hmm. for undergraduate research and there wasn't a whole lot of methodologies out there on proper ways to extract DNA from the actual individuals rather than pulling blood and like I said just precursory looking at different things and didn't find a whole lot of stuff out there. No and there's not a lot of Harlan specimens out there period. Um, with fresh tissues associated with those birds. So you may find specimens stuffed with cotton, but they may not have tissue samples that are associated with, with those like, birds that have, you know, documented locality data, which you need. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had, I think I had six Harlan's hawks I was able to look at, and it's hard to draw conclusions from such a small sample size. So you only had six that had tissue samples with them? Or? Correct, yeah. Okay. Did you try and extract data or uh, DNA from any of the other individual specimens? Um, I looked at uh, six Harlan's hawks. They were, I had dark morph, I had intermediate morph, and I had light morph, which is exactly what I wanted. I had a dark morph western bird that had originally been tagged as Alaskensis, the Alaskan. Um, but to our knowledge, um, in the literature, we do not uh, consider dark morph Alaskan birds as being a thing. We think those are dark northerns. Okay. Um, hmm. Or western, so we, we chose to identify that as a dark western and it looked different. It was chocolate. Yeah. And then we uh, had some plain eastern birds to compare with. Okay. So are there any regional differences between the dark, intermediate, and light face Harlands? Because where I do most of my banding is in northwest Missouri on the river bottoms, and I see them all. Um, so I, I wondered if they all come from the same place. Do you have any input on that? Um, we haven't seen a lot of clinal variation in the Harlan's hog phenotypes. Okay. Um, you know, obviously you see some differences with, with criders geographically than you would with Harlan's. Okay. Um, but generally no. And they interbreed a lot. They interbreed extremely, extremely frequently okay. on the subspecies. There's a ton of intergrades, which can make identifying them very difficult. Yeah. And um, it, de- it depends on what species concept you follow. Yeah. Um, my advisor at Columbia developed um, the phylogenetic species concept back in the 80s. My current advisor is um, developing um, the mitonuclear species concept. And then, of course, you've got the very old biological species concept. So depending on which concept you follow, there's no way they can be separate species because if you're following biological, they interbreed. If yeah. they can, then they can't be. Right, but, um, you know, also Harris's and Golden's can interbreed, so... Right, and so that's that's another thing that we were interested in looking at is hybrid viability uh-huh. um, due to mitochondrial incompatibilities or not mm-hmm. um, in different raptor hybrids. So that's a separate project I may be working on. Interesting. Well, that, that all sounds like really interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm excited to do it and maybe come back here, um, be less selected with the Harlands I'm trapping... Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, um, get some blood samples and try to do a fuller genomic um, sequencing analysis to kind of identify these, these coloration genes more broadly because just choosing three. Yeah. And that doesn't tell you a lot. I did choose three that were very conserved in the literature and that I thought were the most likely, but I wasn't too surprised that they didn't come up with anything. So do you know Jay Tuttle? The name's familiar. Okay, so he is finishing up his vet, veterinary medicine uh, education, um, but he has done some raptor research. He actually did some in um, Mongolia, and uh, he sent me a paper. I haven't read it yet, but he told me that there were 
seven different alleles that control color variation within ger falcons. Have you heard anything about that? I think that's the same study that I was same referring study? to. It's okay. a, I think it's Johnson at all 2012. Okay. But uh, Johnson. Because we were that. talking about you know ultra whites and super whites and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And I think he got those birds from I think Iceland. That's where the ultra white genes come from. He the, his when he was oh, looking his at study yes came from Icelanders yes okay. and it was it was actually down it was one gene actually okay um, which was the MC1R which is the melanocortin one receptor interesting and so that's a gene that I looked at as well um, okay but there was there was no correlation but you know falcons and hawks you know they are you know n- not at all similar they're you know diverged a long time ago we know mm-hmm. falcons now are more closely related to parrots than they are to hawks so it's not a huge surprise but at the same time it, if this color gene is so conserved you know from i mean so many different animals birds mammals uh amphibians reptiles um i thought maybe there was a chance but no and it, it really just proves how interesting this phenomenon is in red tails and all this color variation so you know this could be really useful for some of these species that aren't necessarily discrete color morphs like always black always white you know or Uh red versus you know black and white or something and so if i'm able to identify what those are that could help inform other pigmentation studies okay all right so i got one more question about this i don't know if nick's got any more but um so my question is uh, why is an alaskan bird black like it just—it seems counterintuitive that you would live up where it's, you know. Oh, a lot there's. Of snow I all see. The time. Okay. You know, like criters. It makes sense that a white bird would live where there's snow a lot of the time, but why is a black bird living up there in the Arctic? So there's a a couple different um, uh, different rules. You know, you've got um, um, Gloger's rule, and I'm kind of confusing which one is which. But um, basically, there there's a rule that stipulates. You know, the higher you go in latitude, the darker the bird. Um, Humidity, more humid areas, the Pacific Northwest, um, you tend to see darker birds. Hmm. Um, Peregrines, merlins, this actually works for other raptors as well. They are darker. Black merlins are up there. Um, It could be related to um, UV radiation as far as um, absorbing heat. Okay. Um, So, um, you know, thermoregulation could play a role Uh there's a lot of hypotheses we don't know exactly why but we do know you know there is this with this correlation with birds being um or animals in general being at higher latitudes being a little darker interesting Hmm. i had not heard that rule that's interesting um have you noticed any differences between harlan's red tails and the other subspecies as far as behavior in your yes. experience? So, um, the Harlins seem, uh, which is what we've seen, are a little spookier. Their, their flushing distance is a lot farther, meaning, you know, the, you can flush a Harlins from much farther away than say an Eastern or a Western. And this could be due to, you know, their geographic isolation. They weren't, they're not as adapted um, to humans as some of the other subspecies are. They're more isolated. Um, so that could be a factor. Hmm. That's really interesting because, ton- you know, I, I went down to Padre this fall and trapped a tundra peregrine. Yeah. And they are incredibly easy to be around. Like, you just, you drive right up to them. Oh, they don't spook easily. Not at all. Not at all. And so it, 
it's interesting to me that there's that difference between those two because tundra birds i mean they don't have any exposure to people until they're migrating you know there's no one up there where they're at and i have i don't have a lot of experience with peregrines are they spooky in general are you saying that this race is is a little spookier i mean I haven't had much exposure to other peregrines, but tundras are kind of known for. I see. You can drive right yeah, into. that's fascinating. Uh, I was talking to, uh, who was it? Dan Murray, I think. He was telling me about these uh, tundra birds down there on the beach, and there's um, a long-standing uh, banding survey that goes on down there on Padre, and he said that the birds will get caught by the banders. They uh, put a band on them, and then they actually put a little bit of dye on them. So that they can mark them and know um, whether they're catching the same bird or that they don't try to catch the same bird okay. twice, you okay. know. And the dye washes off after a while. Um, but he said that the birds will follow the banders. Like, they get caught, they get banded, they get sprayed with dye a little bit, they get released, and then they follow the banders around waiting for them to throw out another pigeon to yeah, be caught again. So I'm actually the one that told you that because one uh. of the ba- I talked with one of the banders who was volunteering down there who's also a falconer and his name escapes me at the moment and he's yeah he said that they will because they trap out on the flats on the laguna side and Mm. we are on the the beach side the end of the gulf and he said they you'll just drive along and there'll be peregrines kind of soaring and flying down the flats and you'll just chuck pigeons off the four-wheelers and then they go back and collect them as they are caught and he said you'll look and they'll be the same bird that you just caught and died just following you along on (laughs) waiting for you to throw out another pigeon that's really interesting yeah is it all right if we kind of switch gears no that's fine all right so i uh don't have a lot of experience squirrel hawking but you three have done a fair bit jackie you've hawked them in um the carolinas and michael you've or hawked them in alabama nick has hawked them in southern missouri so jackie well no let's go with uh, michael first Michael, could you tell us a little bit about hawking them in Alabama, what that's like, what the terrain's like, how you find them, things like that? Okay. Yeah, so uh, I live in what you call the Black Belt, <clears throat> and the reason they call it the Black Belt is uh, the soil's so rich, it's a lot of agriculture and farming. It's, uh, it's kind of got away from that in the past 30 years because the pulp and paper industry, uh, people are starting to uh, tree farm, quotation mark super pines, which... Uh, from plant to harvest to you know get some of your money back uh, is 10 years uh, to have a full mature pine. Hmm. So uh, they grow great in the southwest out in part of Alabama. Um, so that's taken away some of the uh, quail population as bad to where you know if you wanted to fly something different. But uh, as far as uh, squirrels go, they're they're plentiful. Um, the river bottoms, uh, the creek bottoms, it's, uh, it's all hardwood. Uh, Real big uh, canopies. Uh, the leaves don't really start falling until uh, first of first of February, uh, end oh, of really? end of January. It's, it, it's that line before you lose all of them, unless oh, you yeah. unless you have a good storm come through. And then obviously they'll release. But um, yeah, so that's, that's very different than yeah. Missouri. We have we have a pretty good bit of uh, virgin timber that hasn't been cut, and and we have some places that's you know. 25, 30 year old spots that uh, it's it's pretty good to train a young bird because the trees aren't as high, um, and it's more what a bird would be used to, used to sitting on a light pole. But obviously, uh, the 
the bigger the timber, the harder it is for a bird because it's more it's more tree for the squirrel to work with, and the older the tree is, the more dens, uh, den holes, knot holes that the squirrel would have. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot, like I said, a lot more tree to work with when you've got a when you've got a tree uh, a trunk base that's the size of a light pole versus you know a forty something inch diameter something something huge that we would have to hold hands to put our hands around. Uh, the squirrel literally can just move a little bit and you know get out of the uh, hawk's way from uh, it stooping down on it uh, out of the tree. But um, pretty much uh, we have a lot of vines in the area where I'm at. Uh, I know a lot of falconers carry uh, bats and slingshots, bats to beat on the tree to make the squirrel move or slingshots. I mean, my hunting partner he'll he'll carry the slingshot. I usually am always filming. And we may shoot a high nest or something just to to, to move the uh, squirrel or whatnot. But um, pretty much, it's uh, we're, we're hunting gray squirrels, and uh, uh, the way we do it, I know I've seen several different methods, and uh, some of them are interesting. I I saw somebody in uh, Kentucky that didn't release the bird to the dog tree. To me, that doesn't seem fun. You know, we throw the bird up and we start walking. The bird follows us, or if the bird doesn't move up, there's a squirrel in the tree. Pretty much, you know, we won't just try to call the bird up, we'll go back. But um, uh, I guess, you know, people kind of tend to think that you're walking around and you don't look like you know what's going on. But from, from, from my experience and what I see in the woods, uh, when I'm walking through the woods and there's a squirrel in the tree, say I'm walking north to south and the squirrel's on the north side of the tree. The squirrel sees me, he's going to rotate 180 degrees to the south side of the tree mm -hmm. to hide. With the bird following back, as soon as I walk by that tree, squirrel rotates back to the north side 180 degrees, caught ass, pretty much. Um, that's uh, that's a lot of the ways that, uh, that we're successful. Um, sometimes I may walk through the woods just shaking vines or whatnot, but a lot of times, especially on a seasoned bird, you can just you can just walk and the squirrel's gonna uh, mess up and move anyway especially when there's no leaves on the trees mm -hmm. um, but yeah that, that's pretty much uh, I mean there are some spots that uh, would look like West Virginia but we try to stay stay away from those spots just because uh, uh, it's harder you know obviously it's harder for a bird to uh, on a bail out say the squirrel bails out from the top of the tree on the side of the hill going down it's harder for the bird to hold on on that uh, angle than, mm -hmm. than flat ground but uh, we we usually try to hunt some slight maybe slight rolling hills or flat or flat bottom land, uh, not too far from a creek or whatnot. But um, it's pretty uh it's pretty good uh pretty good walking. I mean we do have some spots that'll be a little bit thicker with maybe some uh, uh, some 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 slight bushes or um, some areas are a little bit thicker with palmettos, you know, and they stay green and fanned open. So, uh -huh. but it's not it's not too bad. It's a uh, it's pretty good for uh, we we get a lot of bailouts and a lot of mid air catches and uh, or as soon as the squirrel hits the ground the the, squirrel, uh, the hawks landing on top of the squirrel um, and we see some mostly I've I've hunted mostly terrasels and uh, from from what I can see uh, they don't sit back and, and kind of wait like a female waiting for the squirrel to maybe jump from canopy to canopy they uh, they go on and. 100 uh, percent the whole time I, I know you hear people talk about a second year bird they tend to maybe sit back and think about the attack a little bit better 
but we don't really see that. I mean, every bird we've we've hunted that's been inter, you know, intermute or whatnot, it's uh, they kind of always act like they have when they were a, a juvenile. They uh, they give 110 percent the whole the whole hunt, and it's it's nonstop until the squirrel either looks up and makes it to the to a hole somewhere, or you know, if it leaves and we just lose it in cover. So when you're flying in with when there's leaves on the canopy is there a marked difference between your bird's success rate in that versus once the leaves are off 100 percent, yes um so i don't have any data to back this up but from in my experience that's why i like to catch an early season bird because once you get that bird understanding to look up and, mm -hmm. and and realize that there's game above it especially in these older trees uh, they tend to stay higher and um, when there's leaves on the trees you've got about two two to three minutes to catch the squirrel or the squirrel's going to get away and if you take a juvenile bird early season before the leaves are on the trees you better be ready to uh, move uh, February while they're hunting they'll see a twitch a quarter mile away and you better you know you better be ready to get there they, it, it's remarkable how much difference it makes in a bird but it teaches them to stay a little bit closer hunting to you so as you're moving up they i've noticed they tend to move up quicker with you with an early taught bird with mm -hmm. when when the leaves are on the trees they still tend to do that but you do have to be prepared to uh be ready to run because when the leaves are off if they see a squirrel they're, they're gone and you you got to keep up i got you so if you had to describe your perfect squirrel hawk what would you describe male female red tail size range do you like a certain shape you know like um, um uh, confirmation wise well I, i've hunted mostly mostly males i have one i've had one female that that i caught but i actually uh i actually passed it on to another falconer who was a friend i got real busy with work and i just can't have a bird sitting um i don't think it's right so i uh uh, transferred it to him and she's a she's a very successful uh, bird but um I do tend to like the males because of how much more maneuverable they are mm -hmm. in the woods um, I would say a, uh, anywhere from a 800 to a, a thousand gram bird would be fine with me uh, I do like a high uh, prey drive and um, I mean disposition doesn't really matter to me I've had some that were pretty mean and uh -huh. uh, that to me that the, the greedier the better I guess um, <laughs> but yeah I would say and as far as you know I mean coloration that don't really matter to me yeah it'd be cool to have a unique bird but uh, as long as it's got a, a high prey drive and wants to wants to hunt that's what I'm that's what I'm looking for when I when I walk out the back door and the bird sees me come out and it's sitting there just looking out the window, leaning forward. hitting the bars when it yeah. sees me coming, it, it knows it's time to go hunting. Uh, that's that's what I'm looking for. Okay. And it definitely, definitely takes the right bird to want to keep taking punishment. I mean, it, right. And our the way the way I do a trade off is, um, I can I can take a uh, I, I use from a Rodent Pro the uh, they're roughly eight to ten gram baby mice mm -hmm. white fur. I pull the head off, hold up hold the head in my glove, pitch the body, bird goes to the body, put the squirrel in the bag, call the bird up to the head, 
uh, clip it, clip the bird, hood the bird, and then you can just watch the bird calm down, it aroused, shake it out, walk off a little ways, take the hood off, pitch him back up in the tree, and it's a new day. He's ready to go again. But doing that and staying consistent with that, you know, obviously after a couple of, maybe maybe after two squirrels, uh, you have to almost watch the bird sometimes. It will be ready to release the squirrel and, and, and hop to the tidbit. It don't even, it, it, it don't even act like it wants to break in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I've heard of this kind of phenomenon. I, I've never really taken multiples uh, with my red tails where mm -hmm. I live. Um, but it's almost like they learn a trick to get the treat. Now, rather than catching it and being like, okay, this is my meal. I'm going right. to sit here and I'm going to eat it. It's almost like you tap into their brain and they're like, okay, I've caught it. Now where's the, where's the reward? Give it to me. You know, right. and uh, people have had trouble with their birds. They walk up and the bird hops off the rabbit, lets the rabbit go. Right. I've, and is you know. I've seen that once. Uh, my uh, buddy's bird. He actually was ready for that and released the squirrel, but he actually had punctured the squirrel, so oh. it was uh, it was wounded, and we, we we ended up getting the squirrel back. Um, but yes, I, I've seen that once before with the with the squirrel, and we usually I would say normally. Um, on a weekend, when it's, if it's John and I going hunting or something like that, uh, we may catch five or six squirrels, but it'd be, you know, we may double or triple in the morning and double and triple in the evening. And that's not to say to be greedy, but that's, uh, that's a free way to feed your hawk through the molt. Yeah. And that's why we do it. Oh, yeah. And there's plenty of game. Um, I've, I have roughly 40 acres behind my house. I tend to only hunt that and keep that available for a single quick hunt after work i don't uh -huh. i don't ever double there i i, I just kind of keep that as a as a quick hunting spot for after work but uh if it was somewhere that was uh you know it wasn't a high squirrel population we would uh we would definitely not try to uh, over hunt it and that's one great thing about the state of alabama is uh everybody in general that we've met they're so intrigued and to falcon and so interested and want to go they they call us and ask us to come and that's a great thing to have because it keeps the pressure down you can go hunt one spot today and you may not even need to roll back around to it for two weeks or a week and yeah uh what i've noticed with the gray squirrels in alabama if you tend to hunt it every weekend or a couple times a week they run like greyhounds like greyhound dogs i swear it's, yeah. it's, it's awful and they will just run for forever and, and it makes it that much harder to catch but uh it's nice to have several different spots to keep them and rotate them out. Right. Very cool. So, Jackie, do you want to kind of compare and contrast what your experience has been in Carolina? Yeah. So, uh, since coming to Alabama, it's definitely um, thicker. There's a lot more vines, mm -hmm. which is wonderful. Um, in the hardwood forest that I'm hunting in North Carolina, there will be some vines, but it's definitely a marked difference in Alabama. So, I rely more on, you know, an axe handle you know, beating the trees, um, trying to get the squirrels to move it all so that the hawk can see them. Uh -huh. um, but we still have, it's it's not completely dissimilar. Um, it's kind of the same game. Um, we do have some areas, like some pockets of fox squirrels by the coast in, uh, in North Carolina where you can go and it's very swampy. You know, I hiked up in, in waders in the water up to my knees um, chasing fox squirrels with the bird in, in water, uh -huh. um, which was definitely an experience. Will they swim? 
Yeah, I've seen squirrels swim. They can yeah. hold their breath and go underwater. Yeah, and I've seen them actually um, bail out of a tree and then, you know, cross the creek, and then they're just little bubbles uh-huh. where they're underwater. You can see little bubbles as they're as wow. they're as they're coming by. But I haven't seen that too often. But I have seen enough that that was just crazy. I've seen some crazy stuff with grays. I've had them hide under rock shelves in like creek beds, which you'd never think they'd go into a hole in the ground, but. I mean, just literally, like, where you, unbelievable that they were even able to fit, mm-hmm. and just finally got it out of there. I, I, the only reason why I even knew it was there, the bird is standing on the ground looking in the hole right where the squirrel got right. to, right before it got there, and they've got all kinds of tricks up their sleeves. They do not like being caught by hawks. Yeah. <laughs> now, I will say, we kind of have different preferences for the catches we like to see. Yeah? Yeah. He, you know, Michael seems to like the bailouts. Or catch them in midair, you know, slamming into the ground, which is always, you know, that's a pleasant sound to hear, that yeah. slam into the ground. But I really like to see um, the bird way up high in the canopy, kind of fighting them in the canopy, and or catching them on the transfer as the squirrel moves from one tree to another, and then helicoptering down. It gives uh-huh. me time to get right underneath the bird, look straight up, see them coming right at my face, <laughs> spinning, you know, really hard, and... I had one experience where, you know, the bird hit everything on the way down and went into such a violent spin that you just, I wish I had caught that on video because it was just like a little tornado (laughs) helicoptering down so fast. And then another time hitting everything on the way down, the bird actually knocked itself out on the ground with the squirrel still, you know, her feet were still ratcheted onto the squirrel. Uh So I approached and thought, you know, what's going on here? My bird's on her back, not moving. And she was knocked out cold, still holding the squirrel, which was uh, biting her, the shaft of her tail feather. Uh-huh. And just broke the, the rest of the tail feather right off. And then I, I went in and killed the squirrel and kind of tried to wake her up and shake her. And she really wasn't moving. I was a little nervous. She was breathing, though. Uh-huh. And then I, I thought to blow my whistle, my really loud whistle with, with the lure. Uh-huh. And the sound stirred her. And she, she got up. And uh, we were, there was really no side effects from there. We just went home. But um, huh. it was cool to see, you know, she still had that squirrel and was <laughs> killing it unconscious. Yeah. So that was that was kind of interesting. But I, I really like seeing those catches from way up high and yeah. watching them come down and land with them because, you know, you can, you can see it from pretty far off. You've got time to get there and be right under them. Uh-huh. Um, but, of course, you know, it's, it's hard to see a squirrel catch that's just like, well, that was boring. You know, it's not a simple kind of wing over on a rabbit into a little brush pile. Yeah. You know, it's um, very three-dimensional acrobatic flights that uh, never get old. They're always a little different, every catch. And do you prefer females? Yes. Okay. For what? The size, aggression? How come? Yeah, I do like seeing uh, and watching, you know, um, the males fly. Um, because they are, they, they do seem less, less calculating. So I feel that they move, they move a lot more, they move faster, they can get up higher, faster. You know, the females are a little more, you know, lumbering about. Um, but I like the size of those feet kind of crushing the squirrel. And I've had, you know, so many squirrel bites that I've seen on so many birds, including mine, a lot of squirrel bites. And a lot of tendon damage that, you know, we've had to go in and repair. And, you know, the thicker the toes, the less you have to really worry about that. Yeah. And um, 
you know, they just, when, it, when a squirrel does bail out and that bird hits the ground, I mean, it's a brick. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, a brick slamming into the squirrel. And um, so I appreciate the power of the females, but I really appreciate the agility of the males. It's, you know, what's not to like from either sex. They're, they're both um, excel. Yeah. Do either of you guys fly with squirrel chaps? <clears throat> I don't. I have and I have not. I've experimented with with every style that's been on the market, actually. Um, what do you think? Three different there's, styles. There's debate. Do they help? Do they hinder? What do you think? I have one picture of a squirrel biting my bird's chap. Um, that foot was pretty useless. Like, it wasn't on the squirrel. It was on the ground, and the squirrel was gnawing on the chap. But generally, you know, I've seen a bird get hung up by chaps. My own bird, not high up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe 20... 20 feet off the ground or something but I think it does impede their their coordination and being able to see where they're footing uh-huh. what they're grabbing mm-hmm. um and so I think you know this year I'm not flying with chaps and I've flown without chaps um many times and justless as well um uh-huh. so I think that's what I, I prefer to do um, and I know that, you know, bites happen and I treat them as they happen. There's a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of different things we can use to treat those bites. And, you know, God forbid, you know, a tendon does go down, which, which is rare. You know, I'm prepared to treat that as well. And, you know, I take, I like to, I pride myself on taking care of my birds. I, you know, I'm not going to blame someone who chooses not to fly their bird on squirrels. They're a formidable quarry. There's a lot of risk involved. I'm certainly not going to, you know, respect someone less for choosing not to fly on them. Um, I do. Um, so, you know, there's definitely risk involved, and I try to mitigate that as much as possible. Sure. It's really interesting hearing you guys talk about squirrel hawking where you're at because it's pretty different from what I'm hearing, from where I'm at. So I'm in the Ozarks, and a lot of the places I hawk, there is a good amount of understory. And so bailouts are pretty effective if the bird's not right there in the right position and they hit the ground that squirrel's going to squirt out from under them when they when they stoop them on the ground and it can be fun you know because the bird does learn that hey i gotta be right here ready to rock and in the right spot or this thing's gonna get away and she also has to hit them really hard when they do hit the ground but it's funny how much of a fact like vines play into it you know like spots you don't have vines you're just kind of sol sometimes to get squirrels to move totally and so you kind of learn where the vines are what trees have them and you know those are the areas that you kind of focus on because you know you can produce stuff but at least where i'm at a lot of times those areas are also the areas that have a good amount of understory and undergrowth i might have to try the baseball bat trick I've never brought one with me. Uh, Axe handles are really... I I know there's a a bunch of us that that use those. Um, They're loud. They don't... They certainly don't break. Yeah. I'll tell you another thing. um, There's a a group of ladies from Georgia. They're they're not falconers, but they really enjoy going with us and other other falconers. They just enjoy watching the birds work. And they pull something out of the truck one day, and I'm thinking, what the heck is this? So... The guys that hold the telephone poles up, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the yellow insulator that goes around the wire? Mm-hmm. They take those and cut them in pieces 
and when you rub it up and down beside the tree or hit it it makes such a god-awful loud noise it's, it's it's crazy i never thought that would be that loud and it, it will move the the squirrel pretty good i was just going to huh. tell you so i bring a regular flushing stick with me and if i have a squirrel that's in a tree and frozen you know because the bird's watching it i'll take that and i'll run it up and down the bark mm -hmm. and you know, I don't know if it sounds to them like something's climbing the tree or if it's just the, the well, loud noise, It'll a lot of times it'll get them to yeah. move. Well, beating this, beating this uh, a stick or an axe handle, squ squirrels, they don't like the vibration that runs up the tree. That's mm -hmm. what makes them move. But uh, when y'all were brought up the squirrel chaps deal, uh, that made me think about uh, Jess's. I don't fly with Jess's mm. either. Um, I see it as walking around with your shoelaces untied. If you, if, <laughs> if, you know, if, if the bird's foot or the squirrel's under, you know, if the bird needs to quickly move its foot, it could impede it. So I don't, uh, I don't, I, the only time I have Jess's on my bird or going from the mew to the box, box to the woods, and then I pull mine out. I don't, uh, I don't fly with Jess's. So do you fly with bells? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, do, you, do you find that that impedes the bird at all? Oh, it, no. The, no. It, I, and speaking of that, it didn't matter if, if I had a 1500 gram female. Or 800 gram male, I use Cooper salt bells because I myself and I've had other folks, and not that I'm necessarily you know partial to a certain brand, but Larry Counts from Tennessee, his Cooper Hawk size bells, the the pitch is so high, and and we'll I mean we'll go out and fly in 12, 15 mile an hour wind. We don't mm -hmm. we don't care, but I can hear that high pitch cut the wind so good. If I wouldn't have had those bells on, I don't fly with uh, telemetry. Mm -hmm. um, if I would have not had the high-pitched bells on, I would have probably lost a bird uh, one specific uh, time. He had caught, he caught probably, I'd say, a 200-gram uh, young squirrel on the top of a tree mm -hmm. and caught a gust of wind and uh, carried. And he ended up hitting the side of a ridge that had an oak tree that blew over. And you know how big the root balls are on an oak tree. Oh, yeah. So he was down in the hole behind the oak tree. And it threw me off a little bit because with the bells ringing, it was catching the side of the ridge and it was kind of, you know, running the, the ridge line. But if it wouldn't have been for the high-pitched bells, I would have never found that bird. Yeah. Wow. Do you think that it alerts the squirrels to the presence of the bird? No, no I've never seen I've never seen where the bells have made any, any, any factor at all. Interesting. I flew my red tail with telemetry last year and she was a pretty aerial bird. And man, that, for me, that confidence and knowing, hey, if she goes off and chases something, which she was not afraid to do, she'd chase something a half mile away because she'd get in the top of the canopy, and if there was enough wind, she'd go ahead and soar over the yeah. canopy. Which I, I've had plans to buy uh, a GPS unit just for mm -hmm. the for the data. I've always wanted to uh, on a specific area. You know, sometimes people tend to take the same trails in the woods. Yeah. So if you've got a let's just say a three four hundred acre spot of hardwoods to hunt, I mean. You, you, at the end of the hunt, you can pull that data up and see the uh, see the trail. Yeah. So then the next hunt, I'd say, you know, well, let me start over here instead of just walking. Because, you know, obviously, if you're taking a couple of squirrels every time you're going and you're only hunting 10 acres of or 15 acres of 100, I mean, then you're not going to see as many squirrels because you, you push some of them out maybe, you know, to a different spot or, or whatnot. So I've always kind of thought that, and I just haven't purchased one yet, but I need to. I started off using uh, a scout and I got a UHF receiver uh -huh. um, and that was because my bird had started catching squirrels um, 
it nests a lot. In this particular time, she had caught it in the nest, started, it was, the fought it forever, just blindly footing in the nest, um, and hours went by. And then finally just started eating it, uh, you know, nightfall was approaching, I camped out there, and the next morning, um, was able to get her back with another squirrel, but, and then several times after that, you know, the bird, because I was flying my bird pretty heavy at this time. Mm-hmm. She was a very reliable bird, um, you know, well, always catching, always getting in the bag. It was, you know, pretty much a, a clinch every time I took her out. And I was really confident in that, in that way. And, you know, she would go and really far off and catch something and be, you know, on a squirrel somewhere and I could not find her. She'd be so still I couldn't hear the bells. Yeah. And I got sick of that. Yeah. I said, I'm wandering around for an hour now when I could have another squirrel in the bag. So this is impeding my falconry. Uh-huh. Um, so that inspired me to go out and get telemetry. And then uh, shortly after the GPS units came out, um, I decided that I wanted to invest in that. And I'm glad I did because this bird that I just trapped, um, the first two times we tried to fly her, she went up in a soar um, 1,200 feet. Holy uh, up to 15 miles she flew and uh, we found her and I started swinging the lure and she folded her wings I wish I could have filmed it I've never, came down I've never seen anything just slammed into the lure how, how fast did she come down oh I don't remember if we checked the speed it would be interesting for a it was 95 to 100 I remember she was yeah I don't that's remember awesome. it was it she, was very you know, cool probably wasn't even really trying like no. if you'd actually flush something like a duck or whatever and she was actually oh, trying absolutely. to come down and nail it. Well, that's that's kind of why we've been ready to go to Lubbock to see if we can get her to soar. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, yeah. And now that's she's good. gone. She's, you know, we t- we've taken her out since then. Of course, she was sick. Yeah. Um, thankfully, now she's better, but, you know, she's sticking to the trees and she knows what we're doing. We, if we shake a vine, she lands in the tree where we shook the vine. She's not, you know, going off and soaring again, but that was... That was an interesting behavior. I hadn't seen that before. You know, the bird wasn't really that fat. I didn't know where it was coming from, but it just wasn't. And it, it was clear the bird had no squirrel experience. Yeah, yeah. You could tell that's how she knew to hunt. We trapped her right outside of Huntsville, Alabama, and it's it's very flat and plainsy, and there's a lot of agriculture mm-hmm. up there. And, and the, the state of Alabama changes a lot, the terrain. I mean, you know, you got the, the beach at the south end, and you got the wiregrass part. Over towards Dothan on the east side of the state, and then it, I mean, obviously around Birmingham, if if we blindfolded you and put you on a plane and you landed, it would look like Kansas City a lot. Really, it yeah. would. Huh. It's very plainsy, yeah. tall grass, no trees. Yeah, huh. no kidding. That's yep. yeah. not what I would expect. Yep. And this. Uh, and she was a resident bird. Oh yeah. This was early on September. Uh-huh. But speaking of the GPS, where I live, it's it's really rural. Uh, we hunt a lot of rural spots. If, uh, if she wouldn't have had the GPS, we would not got we, we would have not got her back. We would have lost that bird. Yeah, that's really. So cool. thankful to have that. And we're hoping that you know if we do catch um, a passage highlands fairly early on this trip, we've got another week um, that we can head down to Lubbock and hunt some jackrabbits at a property that we have there. Um, and it might be nice to see her soar there. Yeah. I think I'd be celebrating, actually, if she did yeah, start soaring yeah. and we flushed something, I, I rather than freaking out. I don't see a jack out running her from a, from a And that sure would be a cool thing to see. Yeah, yeah. from 1,600 feet. Yeah. yeah. No, that would be spectacular. Very awesome. Well, let's go catch a bird, and so you guys can head down to Texas. 
Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds right. wonderful. Right. Really look forward to uh, hearing what comes of this research project you got going and really appreciate you guys taking the time to sit down with us and uh, talk. Yeah, thanks for having us on. We appreciate yeah, it. Our yeah. pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening and happy hawking. <laughs>